Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance, and you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company S.I. and its operating companies: American Family Life Insurance Company, 6,000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's a show that、uh, I'm glad it has not disappeared. It is still there, and that makes me feel so good when I know and I hear and I see productions that are still done, and it still works. Welcome everybody to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today we are going back to 1927 to discuss the legendary musical Showboat, which was a listener request from no one. <laughs> Nobody requested this show, but if you want to know about musical theater, we have to cover it, and it's finally time. I'm so excited. Now, here to discuss this very important show in our art form's history is the author of over 30-30 nonfiction books about theater, film, popular music, including the Oxford Companion to the American Musical, and maybe most important to today's conversation, the Jerome Kern Encyclopedia. Everyone, please welcome Thomas S. Hischak. Hi, Tom. Hi. So grateful you're here. Yeah, glad to talk about Showboat anytime. First question, got to get this out of the way. When did you become obsessed with musical theater? Because nobody writes as many encyclopedias as you have about the people and titles of this thing, and without a little bit of obsession, right?、Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I come from the generation, my and I, because I didn't live in New York City. My experience of, of musicals is buying or getting from the library those cast albums、mm. that you know、uh, that came out、uh, in the '60s. I would check them out of the library, or if I could buy them. So my approach is: I didn't see these shows, but I heard them.、Yeah. So the scores have always been very important to me because that's what survived. When I eventually got to start seeing、um, shows in New York, which wouldn't be until the '70s. Uh, it changes somewhat, but I always go back to the cast album. Yeah, that's beautiful.、Uh, I I completely、yeah. connect with that because you know I've told this story on the the podcast before, but just sitting on the kitchen counter, following along in the CD booklet with the cast album playing, 
and seeing the production photos and using my imagination to bring this whole story to life because I'm like in a farm town in northern Utah, like about as far away from Broadway as you can get. But like that is that was the spark. That was the spark of really wanting to live inside these stories. Yeah. Uh, It's so common that the people around the country who love musicals never, you know, never had that opportunity to see professional shows. I mean, I saw tours before I ever saw anything on Broadway, but it it doesn't matter that the affection you can have for Broadway musicals is not a matter of, oh, well, I grew up going to the theater with Aunt Martha and we saw how to succeed in business, you know, when I was seven (laughs) years old and I've always remembered it. Uh, yeah, that, a lot of people have that experience, but a lot of people don't. And I don't think it makes much difference because I can't feel like I was disadvantaged by living. In my case, it would have been uh, upstate New York, and then it was Ohio, and then moving all over around the country. Wow. Um, I, I feel connected to it. That's so beautiful. Well, we're, we are kindred spirits in that way. Now, we'll be talking about a lot of interesting artists today. Let's begin with someone who deserves probably a lot more attention than he's ever received on this show, composer Jerome Kern. And Mm -hmm. in your book about him, you credit him with creating, quote, the sound of the American musical. Now, can you help us understand why? Yeah. He was not interested in copying European forms. Mm. He thought there is an American sound of music and we don't need to sound like Gilbert and Sullivan or Viennese opera, Mm -hmm. uh, all of which were very popular when he was growing up. And uh, that's what Broadway was. It was British musicals or it was translations of German, French, Viennese, usually uh, operettas. And uh, but he was interested in an American sound. And he really comes into his own in the teens. So he's really going way back. And in the teens with a series of musicals called The Princess Musicals. Yes. And listeners, I'm going to interrupt you real fast. Listeners, you may remember we briefly discussed The Princess Musicals in our Drowsy Chaperone episode, which is also probably the only time that we've talked about Jerome Kern because he really did kind of cut his teeth in terms of like creating character driven music, right? And if you're familiar with Drowsy Chaperone, which is a spoof, but it's pretty accurate in the kinds of songs, the ridiculous plots that the princess musicals had. But they were small musicals. They weren't uh, uh, Ziegfeld productions. Sure. They were modern. They weren't set in, you know, a gypsy camp in Bavaria. And they, <laughs> you know, as most of the musicals did that. Right. A musical about today, contemporary urban, smart, educated people with a pretty silly plot and intelligent lyrics and music that was like today. And boy, they were popular. They were so popular. And the only one we do today anymore, they, they, once in a while, somebody will do very good Eddie. Uh Um, Which is funny. That thing's got jokes. I think it's really clever. Yeah. And it, you know, it actually had an audience. Uh, again in the 70s when they brought it back. But even if they've totally disappeared and nobody ever listens to them again, the princess musicals are important because sitting in the audience was a young Cole Porter, young Mm. Richard Rogers, young Lorenz Hart, Gershwins, 
Wow. And they love these musicals. Mm. And they said, this is what we want to write. They, they weren't even, they were nobody. They were teenagers. And they said, this is what we want to write. We don't want to write operettas. We don't want to do German sounding stuff. We want an American sound, not only when they sang, but when they spoke or when they sang the lyrics. And so if nothing else, the Princess Musical is the inspiration for a whole generation and probably the greatest generation of musical theater artists that we've ever had. Wow. So the composer is Jerome Kern. A little bit of ragtime, uh, a little bit of jazz. And that was the smart sound that people loved and uh, would launch Kern's career. And must say, definitely the African and American influence into oh, American yes. culture. Yeah, even though he didn't you know, come from New Orleans or anything like that, he knew what was being played. Uh, he was a New Yorker, and he knew the different sounds of American music, and he loved it. The influence of, of blues and jazz and ragtime, it, it's, there's no question, it's there in, in all of his music. And Jerome Kern grows up in a Jewish family, right? New York, oh, yeah. one of those musical prodigies from the right. get-go. I, I read a, a funny story where it, it, it seemed like music was kind of the only thing that he was good at. <laughs> like his his uh, dad maybe wanted him to take over the oh, family business and he, he was yeah. just kind of terrible at it. <laughs> his family was very cultural and uh, cultured, I guess. And they did listen to everything from symphonies to, you know, the latest stuff. But they didn't want him to go into that as a career. But the, I think you can say that for almost all of the great mm -hmm, songwriters. Uh, even Hammerstein, who comes from a, a musical theater family, even his family didn't want him to go into it. They wanted him to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but Kern was pretty smart. He was a savvy businessman. Besides mm. being very talented, he kind of had a sense of, you know, of what worked and what didn't. And he also, he had a painting collection, for example. It was worth millions of dollars. He understood art, liked art. So he's a person of the world, uh, mm. to say the least. But his favorite thing is to write not an opera, not, you know, symphony, but to write for the musical stage. Do movies, but he was never as happy out there doing movies as he was, you know, doing plays. Yeah, a lot of the songs I think that we know from Jerome Kern outside of Showboat are probably all film songs like, you know, The Way yes. You Look Tonight and all of those. It's true. Uh, because those films are still shown. Right. And they're alive. A lot of his shows are not done, so unless they've been recorded, and a lot of them have been recorded, and nobody does Roberta anymore. No, uh, but it's got a score that it just you know out of this world. He had a huge success with Showboat, but no other stage musical ever got to that level, and it wasn't for lack of trying or talent. It just didn't work out. Hmm. Hammerstein is the one who gets a whole new career in the 40s and, uh, you know, becomes famous for all the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. But, uh, but Kern never enjoyed that. Mm. And then it is so ironic and sad that they got him to come back to New York to write the score for Annie Get Your Gun. And right. he was so excited. And uh, the prospect of writing this with rural American music, he comes back to write the score He's not off the train for uh, for more than a day or two, 
He's walking through Lower Manhattan and he drops dead from a heart failure. Never got to do that show. So um, and and not that it what would it would have been different. It wouldn't have been better. It would have been different than Irving Berlin, but it would have given him that last big hit. Mm. But uh, but he never got to experience that. Mm. Dang. I, a piece of trivia about that, and it, it always gets people going. Some people say he did write one of the songs in Annie Get Your Gun. And uh, with uh, the original one with Dorothy Fields was going to write the lyrics for him because they had done some wonderful movies, won an Oscar together. The contract says all the songs are by Irving Berlin. There is one song that we're pretty sure Irving did not write. And every time I ask somebody, what song from Annie Get Your Gun do you think Kern wrote, most people guess it. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, my gosh. There's a song in Annie Get Your Gun that doesn't sound like the rest of the song. I'm going to say I got lost in his arms. I don't know. Yes, that's it. Yeah? lost in his arms. Oh, my gosh. That song is so gorgeous. And you're right. It It doesn't really sound like a Berlin song, does it? There's something about it that's very Kern-like. But the contract was that this is a score by Irving Berlin. And so that's the way the legally it went. But a lot of people in the business, some people know, and other people just feel, because he did start working on this show. He had worked in California. He had started kicking around a few ideas. But anyway, we're getting off the subject. No, no, that's so that's fascinating. Okay, so Jerome Kern, obviously smart, not only musically, but also I think maybe in terms of finding opportunities because we we obviously discussed the princess musicals him finding a way to be a new voice in theater without needing to follow the traditions of these big operettas and reviews he then finds the novel showboat written by edna ferber right and in a similar way sees this as an opportunity to musicalize something you know quite important and truly american now right. this novel was a huge hit when it first came out, right? Incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. And Edna Ferber, amazing playwright, author, she had, <laughs> the story goes is that she, on opening night of a play that she had written with Kaufman, Moises yeah, Kaufman, it, that there were like all these bats in a chandelier in the <laughs> in the theater and they all went everywhere during opening and so then the whole audience had to leave and it was this like just disaster of an opening night and the producer jokingly mentioned okay the next show that we're doing we're getting on a showboat and just going down the river and performing for you know all of these towns and (laughs) and and it kind of planted this seed in her to be like showboats huh like a traveling show down the river and so she started investigating this phenomenon that was quite popular. It, we would think of it today as like a cruise line, right, with on-ship entertainment. But instead of people coming onto the ship for a long journey, the mm-hmm. ship would go to different places all the way down, in this case, like the Mississippi River, stopping at small towns that probably don't get a lot of entertainment coming to them. And so then when the boat comes in, there's an opportunity to like put on a show for this for this group of people. Right. The uh, uh, this phenomenon starts, oh, I think after the Civil War, it picks up you know, mm. because the rivers are now safe and free. And that the train system would build up 
and we eventually have touring companies that would go to theaters. But before that built up, the showboat really was uh, the way to bring entertainment to the people. And it remained that way all the way. They were still operating, but I think by the time the Depression came, they were pretty much all gone. Mm. Um, some of them were museums by then. The entertainment they brought was not high class. It was melodramas. They they were not musicals uh, because they weren't that big. The stage was small. The theater itself was a structure like a barge, and it was usually pushed or pulled by another boat. It wasn't the image that we have from the movies is the big paddle wheel and everything. Right. It's like the one all in one. They were floating barges, floating theaters that were tugged into it, tied up, depending on how big the town was, how long you could stay, you know. Sure. Maybe you can only stay two performances, and that pretty much, you know, exhausted the the uh, the clientele. Edna Ferber's a New Yorker, but she writes about everything. You know, she writes about Texas, she writes about uh, New Orleans, and uh, she does her research. And uh, Showboat, it's a little bit like a Gone with the Wind. It feels very melodramatic. It's got great romance in it. It's got some real heavy-duty stuff. It's long, but it's not as long as people think. Um, she had no idea that she wrote it as a novel. She didn't think for a minute it would ever work on stage. This is a stage woman, like with a lot of oh, experience. Yeah. She's very savvy about theater, yeah. And yeah. Uh, but she's got two really good careers. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, and then she's uh, a, a playwright who usually worked with people. You know, mm. uh, Kaufman being the most common, most frequent. But Hammerstein read it. And Kern read it, and it's hard to say who's got the idea first. And they went to her. Actually, before they went to her, they wrote Old Man River. They thought they should play something for her. My gosh. And so they went to her and said, we want to make, you know, uh, not only a play, but a musical out of Showboat. And she says, you can't be done. It's... So then they played Old Man River. And then she says, you can make a musical out of this it won't be the musicals i'm used to or anybody or else. anyone else for that matter right but you can do this but it won't be musical comedy they worked on it hammerstein did an amazing job because it is a long sprawled out story he had to eliminate characters he had to come combine certain scenes and uh as strong as it is, it, it has problems in the second act. For and sure. Every time it's done, people fiddle with the second act. Even Hammerstein did. When they made a movie, he fiddled around with the second act. When they revived it in the 40s, he fiddled around and changed a few things. He was never totally happy with it. All the way up to, oh gosh, the 1994 revival, uh, Harold Prince, the director, is fiddling around with the second act. <laughs> and, uh, and I think... Prince being as brilliant as the originals, um, he used dance and Susan Stroman particularly to help unify the second act. Hmm. And it was the best second act I ever saw of that show. Hey listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii. So now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you 
It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, you've touched on so many interesting things. A few that I want to spend a little bit more time on. Number one, you know, we think of Oklahoma as being the beginning of modern musical theater. And for, for many, many good reasons. Showboat happens, what, 20 years before? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so so much. Forty-three, yeah. There's a difference there, and there is a very specific difference, oh. and I think it a lot of it comes down to the dance, to the way that we psychologically allow these characters to express themselves in the art form. And it's mm-hmm. funny when you talk about the 1994 revival with Susan Stroman, which, by the way, I would watch Kim's Charleston, the number that they that was shown on the Tony Awards that year. And I had it on a, a VHS and I would watch that number over and over and over again. And I truly believe as a choreographer, that's how I learned how to build numbers is from watching Kim's Charleston from Showboat that Susan Stroman did anyway. But it's almost like they turned Showboat into a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical post-Oklahoma by mm-hmm. incorporating the stance and allowing the the inner worlds to be expressed in a much an even richer way than it was in right. you know 1927 the 1927 uh musical was not about dance it had some big production numbers it's hard for us to imagine but the original production had 100 people on stage not all at once because <laughs> uh, they have a huge black chorus they had a white chorus they had a dancing chorus white black but of all the spectacle that there was, dance was not major. Hmm. Matter of fact, I can't even tell you who did the choreography. But there's a big difference between the two shows. After Showboat, and everybody said, brilliant, amazing, wonderful, life went on as if it had never happened. There weren't other showboats. But everybody was like, we love it. Now let's go back to operetta. Let's <sighs> go back to musical comedy. Let's go back to reviews. Let's go back to the follies. It was almost as if, as brilliant as it was, it was in its own time capsule that didn't happen with Oklahoma. When Oklahoma opened, it everything changed, changed everything. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. You can say that's pre-Oklahoma, that's post-Oklahoma. You can't say that with Showboat. That mm. um, doesn't mean to take anything away from it because it's the pioneer mm-hmm. that comes first. But it didn't change people's idea of what they wanted to do in the theater. And Oklahoma did that. 
and Rogers, excuse me, Hammerstein does both. One mm-hmm. man wrote the script and score for the two most influential musicals of American theater. It's mind boggling. I'm wearing my uh, Oscar Hammerstein Oscar. as <laughs> Superman shirt. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he's he's such a hero for, to me in many reasons, or for many reasons. And many of those reasons are on display here in Showboat. So let's, I, I want to touch on three before we go through the show itself. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on three reasons why I think well, like my opinion matters. These are three reasons that Showboat is legendary, period. That has nothing okay. to do with my opinion. Number uh-huh. one, you already mentioned integrated show, right? Black okay. actors and white actors in a time when segregation was still fully in force. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't want to applaud too much because, like, the fact that that is a high bar is disgusting. (laughs) You know what I mean? But knowing what our history is and owning it, the fact that they were able to push it Mm -hmm. um, to this place is really admirable. Did they receive any pushback from what you know for Um, trying to do this? They kept everything so separate so that they didn't hit the controversy. Black actors did not sing with white actors. Mm. Dancing the same way. The characters who were black had their own little story, but they did interact with the white actors. It wasn't like they, you know, they weren't allowed to be on stage. And uh, believe it or not, you wouldn't have black and white actors dancing together on stage until Finian's Rainbow, which was 1947. That's wow. the first musical where the chorus was white and black together all the time. And that's a long way in the future. I think people were sympathetic to it We'll take the most important scene, uh, which is in the novel, the scene when they find out Julie is black and the sheriff wants to arrest her because she's married to a white man. And Steve literally drinks a drop or two of her blood so he can say, I have, as the script puts it, I have Negro blood in me. Therefore, this marriage is not an interracial marriage. I mean, that is an unbelievably powerful scene. It is in the novel somewhat, but... Hammerstein's version is better. Mm. Uh, the way he sets it during a rehearsal, and uh, there's not many scenes from the 1920s dramas that are powerful as that is, and that's in a musical, you know, where the book supposedly is not very serious. Interesting. Okay, that's that's really great. So you you touched on number two, which is miscegenation, right? This idea that it was illegal for interracial relationships, and the show tackles that head on. And then number three is the character of Magnolia. And I would say that of all of the characters in the show, Magnolia is probably my least favorite. And yet, <laughs> I have to be realistic in recognizing that this was probably the first time in a musical where a character changed right. as dramatically as Magnolia. She has probably the first true character arc in a musical. I think you're right. Um, musical comedy didn't want characters to make a big change. Yeah, and please. So he, wanted them, <laughs> he wanted to set forth, she's this, she's like this, she's, you know, and then they stay that way for three acts or two acts and, uh, and they get a happy ending. But Magnolia, who starts off as your typical ingenue and she's a little naive and she ages and she grows and she changes 
and you don't get to see that uh, in musicals, uh, even after Showboat. It was rare for a character to do that. But that comes because the book, she makes huge changes in the book. Mm. And uh, so, you know, Hammerstein had something to work off of. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's go through the show. We'll kind of take our listeners through it so they understand, because I don't know if Showboat's really going to be done much these days. It's a long show. Uh, It's a sound that maybe we don't listen to. We don't actively seek out to listen to much anymore. It's no longer than lame is. Well, I mean, (laughs) ain't that the truth? Well, you mentioned about starting with the show. The show starts like every musical with a chorus number but nothing like the chorus number for Showboat. Nothing like this. You meet the white people. They're there. They're singing about how wonderful Showboat is. The music is very fanciful, you know. And the theme song is Cotton Blossom. That's kind of, you know, you're kind of few notes for the show. Mm -hmm. But it didn't take long for people to realize when they studied Showboat that Cotton Blossom is Old Man River played upside down. Dun, 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 instead of dun, 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 dun. Wow. Blowing our minds. Music, put it upside down. Sure. Kern is psychologically, musically tying together Joe on the river with the frivolous Amer- uh, white upper class who are going to see a, a happy show. It's, it's quite remarkable. Would people notice that? No, he knew it. Kern That's often a- did stuff in his music. He says, they're not going to get this, but I do. That gives me chills. Because, I mean, the show begins 1887. So, like, we're talking mm-hmm. post-Reconstruction era, oh, Jim yeah. Crow, segregation, and we're in the South. And so you have these two different lives. You've got right. the the frivolous life of going to see some musical entertainment and then the harsh realities of like picking cotton. So then to know that it's also reflected in the musical writing, flipping it on its head, that's yeah. it's pretty brilliant. The other theme here right at the top that I think goes along with what you're saying is that the showboat itself seems to be an island. I know that's not that's not a hot take. <laughs> but right. it it seems to be a protected island. I don't know, in the way that theater is for all of us weirdos, you know, it's a it's a safe place. It's a right. haven for artists um, in this time period that's very precarious and uh, and there's a lot of change going on. I think also, I mean, he starts with the novel, so that tells you. But if you think about it, if you want to do a musical uh, and you want to have these two worlds, you know, the worlds of, of uh, African-Americans in a oppressive society and you know how else are you going to bring them together you'd have to have two different plots but no queenie and joe not only work on the boat they run the boat she's you know and so then you'll have the crossing of white and black characters that is not too um uh artificial mm. so the boat is a way of getting the two worlds the crisscross exactly um, and then it'll be Plot-wise, the same way. And so on this boat, you have a young girl named Magnolia, who's the daughter of the captain, Captain Andy, who, I mean, is just, couldn't be more lovable, right? Lovable Captain right. Andy. And, musical comedy character. You're right. 
it's a musical play, but he's a musical comedy character <laughs> thrown right into this drama. In, into this world. Mm-hmm. And his wife is named Parthi, who's uh she's prickly. They have this daughter Magnolia who's raised in this kind of fantasy land where everybody gets along and works together. You've got Queenie who is uh the she runs the kitchen. Uh, a black cook, her husband Joe, who is is he the engineer? Is that right? Oh no, no, uh, no that's that's every, the uh, bad guy. What's it, uh, Steve? Um, or no, yeah, Pete. he was the ex engineer, but he's like the everyman. You know, uh, he does a little bit of everything. Awesome. You know? Yeah. Okay. On the boat, and they are you know living and working with some of the actors, which include Julie, who's like oh. the lead actress, gorgeous woman, who we find out is mulatto or half black and she is passed she's been passing as a white woman oh easily yeah she is married to oh by the way lanette mckee oh and that revival oh just the most stunning voice anyway um she's married to steve who is the leading man and so here lies you know this interracial marriage that they're keeping a secret they're keeping secrets The engineer, who's named Pete, who also works on the ship, tries to flirt with Julie. Steve gets mad, knocks him down. He retaliates by going and telling the police on them and saying that there is this illegal marriage on the ship. So one of the, the big climaxes of this first act is the fact that the police come and interrupt a rehearsal on the showboat in the sacred little place where everyone works and gets along and says... You all are breaking the law. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you described so beautifully, Steve, knowing that this was about to happen, drinks some of Julie's blood so that they can't be put to jail. But because... Importantly, he does this in front of witnesses. Mm. He just takes a knife, pricks her finger, drinks a couple of things, but, but he knows. And so when the police come, he could say, you can ask anyone in this room they will tell you I have Negro blood in me. Oof. That's the point is that, you know, it's, uh, he does it in front of, you know, four people, five people. Uh, Steve's smart. I mean, you know, she jokes and said he's, he's not a very good actor. But, he's, <laughs> but even that marriage falls apart and she's abandoned by him later on. Oh, my on. gosh. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, the no, point no, is, no. Absolutely. Do this in front of witnesses so they could say, even in a court, if they had to, that man has Negro blood in him. I know. I saw. You know. So it saves them from, you know, going to jail, but it doesn't save them from losing their jobs. And so they can no longer be on the boat. Right. So now they have this show with no leading players. Magnolia, this young girl, sees it as her chance to to become the lead actress. And of course, mom and dad are not enthused that she wants to go into the entertainment industry, just I'm sure as as Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's uh, parents felt. But one of the reasons why I think she's able to is because she also has met this gambler. He's this super suave guy by the name of Gaylord Ravenal. They have a little I mean it is such a beautiful Oscar Hammerstein moment in when they sing make believe because you see people will say we're in love and if I loved you and all of those great Hammerstein mm-hmm. traditions being right. born right here in this moment he knew how to condense things so you didn't 
you could get through time faster. For example, he's got, I've got to have the hero and the heroine meet, fall in love, and get it over with quickly because the whole story is going to be about their relationship. And I can't spend a lot of time, oh, they meet, they do this, you know. And so he does it in one song. Yeah. They have a little bit of dialogue. He says, we, sh- we haven't met, but we could pretend we've met. And flirt back and forth. Song, the audience has to say, they are in love and there's nothing going to stop it. Mm. You know, it is it's inevitable. And here we are. Yes. And, um, uh, and, and she's smitten with him and it's going to be the curse of her life, but it's also going to be, you know, her greatest joy. Wow. And so now because they are not only in love, but are beautiful young white people, here are your new leading players. It's a, it's a plot device. It's not original. No. You know, the girl who goes on for the, you know, the star who breaks her leg. Or the, <laughs> but, uh, but they've made it quite clear uh, in the script that Magnolia loves the theater. But what happens between the beginning of the show and that scene is a very important number, which some people say they don't think it connects. And that is, I can't help loving that man. Incredibly Where, important. These are two two songs that we've kind of bypassed, but I want to come back yeah. to you. So thank you. So talk to us about Can't it's Help Loving. Plot-wise, because Julie's been singing this song to Noli at Magnolia. They always liked it. They, she always liked this song. And she asked her to sing it again. So she does. And Queenie gets overhears. How come you know that song? Yeah, these this is that's the song for my Only people. Other folks know that song, and of course that's foreshadowing in a maybe not the most subtle way, but it's beautifully put there. Why does this woman know the song that was very popular among the black population? Um, and we've now set the idea down that there's something with Julie that we don't know. There's a mystery about her knowing mm. this song. It's just beautifully put together. It's just, I love the way that that little scene works. And uh, And it's also one of the most popular songs in the whole show. It is. So that's undeniable. Yeah, there's something about it is, it's catchy. So it's, I would say that this musical, every time something next happens, the next scene or the next musical, it's tied in. It's not there like, okay, it's time for a dance number. Mm-hmm. which was very traditional in the 20s. It's time for a love song. It's time for a comic number. It's time for this. Time for, and, it, and in this musical, they're there, but boy, they come in in a totally different you know, way than people were used to. I would also add that the other two numbers I, I wanted to definitely hit on in the first act are Old Man River and Misery's Coming Around, one mm-hmm. sung by Joe and one sung by his wife, Queenie. So here are two other songs based in blues in the black music tradition Mm -hmm. that are used for passage of time, that are used almost as like a Greek chorus commenting on what's going on Mm -hmm. uh, in a a really beautiful way. So it feels like it's moving the story along, (laughs) just keeps moving along. In a fresh way, I don't know if this was, was this done much. I don't know. Misery's coming around, which was foreshadowing that there's something in the air and there's going to be trouble. And this is all happening right before the, the, the revelation about Julie. 
they actually had to cut it from the original. The show was too long. Mm. They kept the music. And in the 1936 film, they play the music beautifully in the background, but they don't sing it. Mm. I don't think they sang that song on Broadway till the 1994. I could really? be wrong. Another version did it. And it is a haunting, beautiful piece of music. It is uh, incredible. And, right, and the Old Man River, that, that's, those are the two you know, African-American songs. Those are the two bluesy. Bluesy. Know. Yeah, that's the. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Misery Come Around is definitely, you know, a sorrowful number. Uh, it reminds me of some of the stuff later on with, from Porky and Bess. Mm. But Oh Man River, it, uh, it, it's a toughie because it just doesn't fall into any category that musicals were used to. Yeah. It's a folk song. It's a protest song. It's a uh, it's a bluesy number. Um, it's it's just so unique that you know I can't say oh it's it's in the tradition of doing this. If it's in the tradition of anything, it's in black music. You know that's a tradition. Yeah. And the lyric, how do you write a lyric for a person who is not educated, has a very limited vocabulary, but sees life very clearly? Men who pick cotton are soon forgotten, but mm. the river doesn't forget. And in probably the most famous line, I'm tired of living and I'm scared of dying. What mm. an interesting observation of More. somebody living the life of a Jim Crow South that you're just tired of it. But at the same time, you got to keep living, you know, you're too scared of dying. I think that lyric is just an amazing bluesy kind of lyric and um, you'd find it in folk songs you'd find it in blues songs but uh there's oscar hammerstein a jewish guy who grew up in new york uh, <laughs> and here he is capturing this very rural philosophy i guess you might say it's it's quite an amazing number uh you, people have analyzed it you know that there are only about four rhymes in the entire song you know wow i didn't even think rhyme. about that no, no rhymes because a rhyme, something, something, boy, something, something, toy, mm -hmm. it's abrupt, it stops. But if you do, must know something, don't know nothing, which is not a rhyme, mm -hmm. they blend together. They just move like the river as opposed to, boom, tired of living, scared of dying. It's just every word is moving along without big punctuation. Then compare it to a comedy song like Life Upon the Wicked Stage. It's got its Which jokes. It's got its lined boom, up perfectly. Boom, boom. Yeah, yep. I mean, you know, Hammerstein was unbelievable that two different worlds here and two different ways of writing a song. Uh, but Old Man River fascinates me and a lot of people because it just doesn't, you know, what's another Old Man River-like song? People have copied it. But there's something about the simplicity of it. It's just so powerful. My gosh. Not to mention uh, with a, a deep bass voice like that. Mm -hmm. we, we just don't hear that yeah. type of singing either. In operetta, the bass voice was always the villain. Mm. Never the, you know. And uh, so here you have this bass voice singing this beautiful song about, you know, the impossibility of life. That was pretty new. But bass voices, even in opera, are generally, uh, you're not very likable. You're villainous characters. You're antagonists. 
the the male lead is going to be a baritone or a tenor, you know, and the female is going to be a soprano. The funny woman is going to be an alto. I mean, sure. they kind of fell into that pattern. Um, and then here's this man coming out in a deep, beautiful voice singing this song. Uh, I'm loving this. Thank you so much for being here. Truly, I'm having such a great time. Okay, so the end of the first act is basically a wedding scene for Magnolia and Ravenal. They sing You Are Love, which is actually quite operetta if oh, you yeah. want to get down to it. So giving the audience maybe what they're used the to. The duets are all from the operetta mode. Um, so it's not that Kern couldn't write operetta, it's just that he didn't want to just write operetta. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Hammerstein said, you know, for true love song, you don't use jazz. You know, mm. today we could do that. But he said, no, we have to go to the romantic operetta for the lovers because that's what people want to hear, two beautiful voices singing that way. So mm. You Are Love and uh, Why Do I Love You, which isn't as operatic, and uh, Make Believe. Make believe. You right. would expect in an operetta that the lovers would have at least three songs together. And so in that respect, Showboat is an operetta when it comes to that part of it. All right, so let's go to the second act, and we'll start the second act by talking about somebody who's not in the show, but whose name was definitely attached to Showboat, Florenz Ziegfeld. A show this big, as it was when in 1927, didn't happen by itself. You couldn't get 100 people on stage without a pretty, I think, hefty producer behind it. And up until this point, Mr. Ziegfeld was known solely for follies, you know, for these big extravaganzas and not really anything serious in any way. So how on earth did Hammerstein and Kern convince Florence Ziegfeld to be the producer of Showboat? Mm -hmm. After he set up the follies and they were very popular and everything, he wanted to get a little bit more of a a cachet of, of being a Broadway producer. Well, he was a Broadway producer, but mm-hmm. so he did a, a several shows that were book musicals. Uh, Rio Rita was a huge hit. And I'm blanking out now. I'm pretty sure Rio Rita is before uh, Showboat. Yeah, it was because he was not totally sure that Showboat was going to fly. So he ended up like kind of green lighting Rio Rita first before yeah, Showboat no, could it, find the theater. Together, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, two yeah. Of them. He used Rio Rita to uh, open up his new theater, the Ziegfeld Theater, uh, 1927, the same year. Yeah. So he, he did have uh, some book musicals. I think he was attracted to this unusual piece of showboat because he wanted he wanted to be known for somebody doing something serious like this hmm. at the same time he wanted al Jolson to play joe you know in oh blackface you know and because he thought that's what the audience wanted and frankly audiences weren't going to get excited about a black performer unless it was a white performer in blackface so he wasn't very progressive in that respect well and minstrelsy it, was still incredibly oh, popular yeah. at this time you People know we're so used to it you know i think he kind of sensed that I don't think this could make money, but I'd like to be the person who who produced it. You know what I mean? I think that that meant more to him because it was a risky venture, to say the least. For sure. And typical Zigfield, well, if it's a risky venture, I'm not going to make it safe by having a chorus of 10 people and no scenery. <laughs> I'm going to make sure this is a Zigfield production 
but no sparkles, no spangles, no girls coming down staircases wearing rhinestones and whatnot. He may have wanted some of that, but Kern and, and uh, Hammerstein were adamant about El Jolson not playing it. And I'm sure they stopped him anytime he wanted to move into, you know, that kind of follies, spectacular, but typical of Ziegfeld, no. And, and, I th uh, and uh, he deserves some credit for it, man, to put his it, name on the show and have people coming expecting something yeah. and getting something else and still being very happy with what they got. Yes. It's pretty and uh, the show was a hit. It didn't make money. You know, I think he was probably as surprised as he was pleased. <laughs> um, but I think uh, most of the Broadway producers at the time, I don't know. I don't know if they tried, but I don't think they would touch this. You know, even the. the the producers who were doing book musicals that may have a little substance to them, like Rosemary, I don't know if they would have gotten it off the ground. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it was he was the savior or he just kind of came in and wanted to, you know, get some of the Shake glory. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I, I'm sure he kept his hand on Showboat for quite a long. Actually, by 36, I think he was gone. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, uh, he didn't live uh, very much after this. Wow. But. That's why Showboat is is tricky because it's a deep pockets kind of musical. It's expensive. Absolutely. Um, I saw a production of Showboat, and it is done more than you might think. It it, it is shows up. Um, I saw a production of Showboat done at a summer theater with no more than twenty in the entire cast. Oh wow! Oman River was sung by an African American and just three dock hands in harmony mm. singing with him and it was thrilling um you know that the bones of this musical are so strong and well done that you probably can you know do things like that but i remember wow. thinking that was as thrilling as any production i'd seen of old man river and it was done with four people lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners. Have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is, because it's May. And we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together. And Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, You'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, so at the top of the second act, six years have passed. It's now 1893, mm -hmm. and Ravenal and Magnolia have left 
the safety, once again, the safety of this like beautiful little island that is the showboat, and have moved to Chicago. They are struggling because of Ravenal's gambling, but they they kind of live as though they have the good life, even though they don't really have the money to have the good life. Uh, kind of, a, as you said, in Act 2, a lot of time passes because the basically the next thing that we see is that they have a daughter 10 years later, and Ravenal and Magnolia have broken up, right? Right. Uh, he, he abandons her. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this is one thing that's so good in the novel that I it couldn't it is, their life goes up and down. They live in an expensive hotel because he's winning all the time. Mm. And then they have to move to a boarding house and they're there for a while. And then all of a sudden they have moving back to the hotel. And so Magnolia and the little girl, they're living in luxury and then they're living in poverty back and forth. And he has such a bad run that eventually he realizes they'd be better off without him. So he leaves. Before he does, he visits a little girl in, at the school, convent school boarding school, I think it is, a mm-hmm. very touching scene. And he abandons them because he knows he's no good. Mm-hmm. And so Magnolia is left destitute. And what does she have to go on? She turns back to the stage. You yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> like the prostitute that we all are. <laughs> we, we go back to singing for our supper. Right. Um, there are a couple things that happen. Uh, Frank and Ellie, who are two uh, of the kind of the character actors from the showboat, right. they meet up with her. They all find out that there's a, an audition at the Trocadero, which is this fancy schmancy nightclub. Right. Magnolia decides to go and audition there. Mm-hmm. Uh, little does she know, Julie, who's, you know, of course, one of our favorites, works there. Mm-hmm. And she unfortunately has fallen into alcoholism after being abandoned by Steve, which just breaks your heart when you see like the kind of stuff that they went through in the first act and then it yeah. reaches this tragic end. No, it must have just gotten worse. Yeah. You know, everywhere yeah. they went and eventually destroyed their marriage. You know? Yeah. She sings this song called Bill, which is just a, a, a gorgeous song. It always makes me, it always plays with my brain because I, I think that Steve's name is Bill. Right. <laughs> right. But, but it's not. She's singing this song, but we know who it's actually about. Right. Jerome Kern wrote this, but not with Oscar Hammerstein, right? If I no, they've written it several years earlier with yeah. the G. Woodhouse. And, beautiful song. Uh, it, it, you know, it's such a beautiful song, but it was in three Broadway shows and kicked out each time. <laughs> uh, um, that's so crazy because, because they weren't very serious shows you know sure. they were musical comedies and uh it just didn't fit and it's gonna kill a sh- it's gonna kill a comedy that's for sure you know, right? yeah this is not a show that keeps especially coming in the second act but showboat it's perfect and hammerstein was very adamant he made a few changes in the lyric very few that people always said he wrote that song. And he said, I did not write that song. P.G. Woodhouse wrote that song. I, I changed a couple words here and there. And it's such a memorable song in the, in the second act of Showboat. But he was always very clear about not taking credit, you know, for that song. Yeah, it's not written for the show, but it's so perfect for that moment. It is. You know, and her character yeah. that it feels integrated into the show. It doesn't feel like it's tacked on, you know. Um, so, it's so great. Now, at, at the Trocadero, 
Julie is in her dressing room and she overhears Magnolia's audition because she hears Can't Help Loving That Man. Once again, an important reason for this song, right? Ties it in. And she realizes who it is. And I I think in a desperate attempt to find purpose and sacrifice Mm -hmm. for something better, she leaves her job so Mm -hmm. that Magnolia can fill it. Right. And that's all we see of Julie. It's really tragic. Yeah, they. I, I don't think it's a bad idea. When they made the 1951 movie, they brought her in for the final scene. Oh. Very touching. Uh, I'm not quite sure the logic of it and why she would be there, but it's a very beautiful ending um, because she kind of helps get Ravenel and, and uh, Magnolia together, I guess. Oh, I gotcha. But, uh, that's not the happy ending that was the original thing. Right. But Julie is, for a person who's not in the show very much, she's very powerful very memorable and she is she's an alcoholic and she's missed performances and so they're ready to fire her anyway Mm. and uh, she says i'm leaving and tell them to hire that new girl she sounds good and it's a turning point you know for magnolia's uh success So Magnolia gets the job. Andy, Cat Mandy, and Parthi come to Chicago to visit their daughter and Kim, the granddaughter has gone to a convent, right? Yeah, she's not around, but yeah. she's a she's a little girl. She's a little we girl. Scared, so she's grown up at the last section. In the yeah. last part, right? Yeah. They come to see Magnolia. Magnolia's big performance at the Trucadero is kind of disastrous. Right. She starts getting booed, and Andy, Captain Andy, saves the day by rallying the crowd. Just mm-hmm. such a good dad <laughs> to to get everybody to start singing along with Magnolia. And then it leads to her becoming this huge musical star. Now, that's the other song that's not written for the show. After the She's ball, right? This is more of a piece of like, uh, like a song that was popular at the time. Oh, unbelievably popular in the 1890s when it came out. Uh, it is the first theater song to sell over a million copies of sheet music. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's very popular. They wanted a famous song from the past. Mm. Now, granted, in the storyline, this is about 1920, maybe, uh, because the show yeah. ends in 1927. 27, so, right. So it's either the late teens or whatever. And they wanted a song that was famous. They could have written something. They wanted a song that was very famous, that even the audience would remember and be very nostalgic about. And this would be the song that would kind of help her get over the, you know, the depression. So um, most people know it from this uh, particular musical, but it is a very popular song and had been in musicals before. But I kind of admire Kern and Hammerstein to be humble enough to say, for this big moment, we needed a big hit song and we can't just write one and hope it becomes a hit. We're going to pick this and, uh, and it works beautifully in the piece. You're right. That, there's a lot of humility there. That's cool. So now it's 1927. Uh, 20 years have passed. Joe is still on the cotton blossom mm-hmm. singing Old Man River. And uh, there are so many different versions of the show. But right. the ones, this is where it gets muddy. Yeah. yeah. The, the one that I'm looking at, which is kind of the 90s version, uh, Captain Andy has this chance meeting with Ravenal, and so he arranges the reunion with Magnolia. Right. Uh, Andy knows that she's retiring and she's coming back to the showboat with Kim, 
who, by the way, now Kim has become a Broadway star. Like, <laughs> it's it's just it's just in their blood. They can't help it. Yeah. She does this uh, updated version of Why Do I Love You, which is a song that was kind of introduced at the beginning of the second act. Charleston mm-hmm. style, so great. And they all meet up at the end here on the showboat. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Magnolia taking him back? Um, she didn't in the original, but when they made the movie, mm-hmm. the Hollywood studios were not going to let him not have the two lovers get together at the end, you know? Interesting. I mean, he was a truly awful, terrible person. They'd kill him off, but, but he wasn't. He was a gambler who just ran out of luck. Um, and so in that 1936 movie, so much of it is just absolutely wonderful. It's short. They've edited a lot. But they really did, uh, Universal, I think, insisted on that ending being clearly that they would get together. I like the original better. And then the 1994 one, where they meet again, they have much in common, but it's not like they're going to fall into each other's arms and everything's going to be happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ending of the play, so beautifully written, is this old woman who has no other character in the rest of the thing. She looks at the two of them and she says to someone i remember the day they got married it was on this very wharf or pier oh that was a love marriage i could tell Mm -hmm. so the irony is here is this person who saw them in their youth and before everything went bad and that's how the musical ends with her saying that and there's uh it's just such a perfectly realistic ending i think and Um, in many ways holds up this symbol of what the showboat represents right right? it continues they were the dream couple yeah they were a true love match i think is the word she uses and uh, they're not anymore and uh they weren't chicago and uh i just find it that ties together the river and the riverboat all showboat all over again with that simple little ending as the music is playing. Uh, I think it's old man river and this old woman just saying, Oh yeah, that was a love match. Mm. You know, the irony of life. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Just perfect. That. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. We made it through. Thank you so much for doing this with me. What a, what a true privilege to hear everything that you got in that brain of yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and, it. I just emptied it. There's no, left. no, we haven't even scratched the surface. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical at gmail.com. Remember, for this month only, if you want a free year subscription to our bonus episodes on Patreon, exclamation point, all you have to do is write a nice review and take a picture of it. Send it to me via a musical podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've already had people do this. It's, it's a great way to really energize the show here at the beginning of the year, and we're grateful for your support. We're also on social media. We got Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. We have our Tee Public store where you can go and buy great designs like the Oscar Hammerstein shirt I am currently wearing and the profits from those designs. We donate to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Hey, Thomas. Thank you again for being on the show. How do we follow you or keep up with anything that you've got going on? My website has it all. It's very simple. ThomasHisJack.com. You can read about the books. 
plays and uh, uh, some other podcasts that uh, you can hear me on. Fantastic. But that's all I would say. Just thomasischeck.com and that's all you need. And we will link that in the show notes, of course. Thank you again for being with us to discuss this super important musical. I hope, I think, I, I'm really pleased. I think everybody's really going to catch the vision of what this thing is and means and was. Yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, remember, Old Man River just keeps moving along. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.